Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's show, Lovett will interview Bloomberg Businessweek's Joshua Green, author of the new book, Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. You know what? It's what? already happened. It's happened. It was a great conversation. I actually went on Raising a little too bar. long. Raising I went on a little too long. Well, this one's actually happened. I opened that book and I was like, I'm going to read a book about Bannon. Ugh. But I, it's a great book and it was a fascinating conversation. Cool. Why was Tommy's like so bored during that whole thing? I'm just waiting for the day one of us. Like, you know, it is a shitty conversation. <laughs> Skip it. Well, he, he did the same thing on Thursday when he, before he interviewed Senator Cortez Masto, he's like, it's going to be a great, it's going to be a great I, I will say, I, look, it was a fine conversation. That was definitely overhyped. <laughs> uh, you can always improve. All right. And a little later, we'll be talking to the host of Crooked Media's Pod Save the People, Duray McKesson. All right. But first, it's August. So, slow news until there's horrendous news, which is usually what happens <laughs> yes. every August. Great. You're about to hear the name of a mountain you didn't know about before. Something's <laughs> going to go wrong. What is this mountain joke you've yeah. been making all morning? It's just that every <laughs> August, some, like there's the BP thing, or there's a, a oh, hurricane, BP. or something unexpected. Like, okay. you know, the world is going to come test Donald Trump, and I, for one, think he's up for you it. He... <laughs> okay. Let's begin with uh, what I think is the most consequential political development of the last week. Uh, the Wall Street Journal report... <laughs> That special counsel Robert Mueller has impaneled a grand jury to investigate whether the president of the United States and or his associates broke the law in connection with Russia's interference in the 2016 election. Robert Mueller is not fucking around. No. Robert Mueller is going to use his dragons. <laughs> but uh, I, first of all, I thought you were doing that in the tone where you were going to say something funny, but you didn't. You said something quite serious I and was, you meant it. I was straight news John there. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, look, grand juries, they're serious business, but I don't know if you know, but Newt Gingrich already doesn't trust him. That's a reason. Well, let's just talk about just the context, context here, context which is like, I think a lot of legal observers have assumed this was going to happen all along. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a crime. Grand juries are used all the time to investigate things, but it provides an important mechanism to bring in a whole bunch of witnesses, interview them in a in a format where lying is a very big problem for them. Uh, we get to check the record of all the things Trump has tweeted and said in interviews publicly. And it also makes me feel like people like Paul Manafort uh, and General Flynn should are very, very nervous. The things we've read make it sound like, at a bare minimum, they have failed to register under FARA, which is the law that says you have to register with the government if you're going to be a representative foreign agent. So, yeah. not good for so, Team Trump. Yeah, it, it basically confirms that Mueller is not just running a counterintelligence investigation, which this whole thing began with. Um, it is now a criminal investigation. And there was also, there had already been a grand jury impaneled uh, for Michael Flynn. There's one in Virginia. But the fact that there's now a second grand jury in D.C. means that this is very likely far beyond the scope of anything that just is Flynn related. There's right a two now. for one sale. <laughs> there's a two for one sale on grand juries. Yep. And as Mueller's boss, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein said on Fox News Sunday, it means that the special counsel can use the grand jury to investigate any crimes that he might discover within the scope of his probe. So this means that 
again, remember, the whole Clinton investigation back in the 90s <laughs> began with Ken Starr looking into Whitewater, a Arkansas real estate deal, and it ended with Clinton perjuring himself over an affair, right? So th- these things tend to go far afield of, of what begins with. So basically any crimes <laughs> that Donald Trump or his associates may have committed could be uncovered with this grand jury. Yeah, and I vote, look, I, I, we don't know what's going to come out of all this, but my sense of it has always been that Michael Flynn is just an ancillary moron. So, like, I, I put this into the Flynn camp of he was aggrieved, he wanted cash, he skirted the rules because he either was too stupid or thought or too arrogant to follow them. But separate and apart from that are all these other things from, you know, Manafort to Don Jr. and all this stuff that's coming up. So, you know, it's exciting days. I will say I'm not defending Flynn in any way. I do think people in Washington have played fast and loose with the Farrah law for a very long time. Mm. Uh, Many of them don't write an op-ed in their own name supporting their client on election day when they're working for the next president of the United States. Very loose. Uh, But Flynn is especially (laughs) stupid. Um, A friend of the pod, Adam Schiffs, argues that move Moving into the grand jury phase is very significant. He said over the weekend that, you know, it shows that there is some there there and that this thing is is not slowing down. It's ramping up, presumably because there's a sense of some wrongdoing. So who yeah. knows? Well, we're not predicting because no. we don't do that anymore. But but what so and what can a grand jury do? As you said, can subpoena just about any record emails. It can get a testimony from just about everyone. It can probably get Trump's tax returns. That's that's going to come up now. Um, they may be able to compel Trump himself to testify. That's how Clinton was compelled to yeah. testify. Don in the Jr.'s 90s. buddy list on AOL. Yeah. Well, yeah. already they've so we already know they've subpoenaed um, records relating to the meeting with Trump Jr., Manafort, Kushner, and the like fifty or so Russians they had in the room at the time. <laughs> the, uh, the 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 entire like, Bolshoi ballet was there. <laughs> the, uh, they, had, they had enough to fill one of those nesting dolls. Yeah, it was like they opened up another Russian, another Russian, and then the little was one was Putin. The meeting was at the Duma, which yeah. is their parliament. People aren't talking about that. Um, so, does this make it more or less likely? Do you think that Trump fires Mueller? That this has happened? We have not heard. Trump has not yet commented on the grand jury story, though. This morning. We're at the point now where Trump's tweets, by the way, like I was getting ready for the pod this morning and I nope. was like, oh, my God, there were like nine Trump tweets. He's screaming about Dick Blumenthal and yelling about Vietnam. Like, and I was just like, oh, this crazy old man, let's just put him it's, aside um, for a second. It's a little bit like, you know, Trump's tweets are like drugs for the media, but now they need a stronger. <laughs> they need something stronger. It's not getting it's, them, it's not getting them yeah. high as they used high as they used to. The, the thing. So it's interesting is Trump's lawyers are taking a new and there was a, there was some write up about this, but. Trump's lawyers are being a bit more conciliatory. First mm-hmm. of all, he's hired a lawyer named Ty Cobb. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that's possible. But basically, they're saying things like, we're cooperating fully. We cannot wait yeah. to see what happens. We're so excited to be working with Robert Mueller. We <laughs> yeah, love yeah. him. Like, Bob Mueller, great suits, heroic guy. Can't wait to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, okay. And, and then also, but was great, all oh, this little internecine lawyer stuff, because Jay Sekulow, Sekulow, the worst one, clearly was... Uh, <laughs> Jay, the worst one. <laughs> Jay, the worst one. This is definitely a new strategy to be to be a bit more conciliatory with the special counsel, but he clearly is being bothered that people are suggesting mm-hmm. that the new lawyer is fixing things. He's like, everything's the same. Everything's just as right. great as it's always been. Interesting aside on this is uh, two senators, Tom Tillis mm. and Chris Coons, have proposed legislation that would give a judge the ability to review any decision by the president to fire Mueller. So yeah. who knows if that'll go anywhere, but there's movement in a bipartisan way in Congress. Yeah, I do. I think that that's a good sign in terms of like whether Trump will fire Mueller or whether he'll be able to fire Mueller. Also, 
now that we've entered a grand jury phase and we have a grand jury impaneled and they're looking into crimes, it's, it, every the more that comes out about this, the harder it is for Trump to, uh, let's say, successfully fire Mueller. Right, right. Because <laughs> well, we're not predicting whether he will or not because who the fuck knows what he'll do. Yeah. Um, but to successfully fire Mueller with all this happening now with the grand jury, I think will be tricky because we are, like you said, Tom Tillis... Lindsey Graham is drafting separate legislation with some senators as well. So there's a whole bunch of legislation now. And for once, like Senate camaraderie and decorum is keeping sessions safe. You know, but like, yeah, it's they're standing up for the institution because they like sessions. So yeah. his ability like you have he, he can't fire sessions because they've all these Republican senators have made it clear that they won't let him refill the job. The Senate's not going into recess. So, you know. You know, Chris Hayes made a good point a while back, which is a lot of people expected that the Russia investigation would ultimately bring down the rest of Trump's agenda. But the reverse could be true, which is the failure of health care reform could finally start making Republicans in the Senate House realize, like, this guy, we basically only have him here because he's a pen yeah. that can sign all of our conservative free market legislation. And if he can't even do that, then why what, the, what, what's good is he to us? Right. They're tolerating the head because they can put a pen in the tiny hands. <laughs> <laughs> It is like stuff that head full of fast food and get it signing things, and it's not working. Yep. This is a good segue into our next topic, which is are some Republican politicians finally starting to look for the exits? Mm-hmm. Um, over the weekend, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns of the New York Times reported that a shadow campaign for a potential 2020 primary <laughs> challenge to Trump has begun and includes potential candidates like Ben Sass, John Kasich, and Vice President Mike Pence. I just want to say that this show is really fun. We're talking about a lot of fun topics, and I'm so glad we won on healthcare because now we get to do this. This wasn't on the outline, by the way, but uh, this morning, apparently, Orrin Hatch said that uh, I saw this. we are moving on to tax reform, and he's sick of the administration still talking about healthcare because they shot their wad on healthcare. And shot Hatch, their wad. Yeah. Salty language from Orrin Hatch. From a Utah. <laughs> that is... Unfortunate. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the the yeah. New York Times piece. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, 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 it makes total sense to me that Sass and some of these other folks who are pretty overtly anti-Trump would begin p- planning for 2020. The Mike Pence stuff, it read to me like he's a very savvy politician. He's mm-hmm. going to Iowa and he's meeting with donors after that event. He's having the Koch brothers over to his house. It's a place to like fet big donors. He's making smart political meetings. He's sort of like you know, bulked up his staff with some good political operatives, not like legislative guys. So yeah, is is Mike Pence thinking to himself he would love Donald Trump's job? Absolutely. Did it seem to me like there was evidence of him making an overt play for it right now? Not quite yet. It seems like a guy who's looking at a president who may not make it through his term, right. keeping his options open. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I combed through the piece a couple times. To, I'm like, all right, where's the actual evidence for the Pence stuff? The closest is that they said an aide to the vice president told people, told an, a prominent Indiana Republican, that Pence was preparing to run in case there was an opening in 2020 and was reaching out for potential help. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that does seem like, look, I mean, the, the fact is, though, that Pence is at least thinking that Trump might not be able to run in 2020 or might not be a candidate in 2020. That would be... That's something big. And it's important to remember, Mike Pence is a scrupulous moron. You know, he's a bad person who would shiv Donald Trump in a heartbeat. He's Donald Trump's vice president. By, by definition, he's a bad man. So he'll do what it takes. But I think what Tommy said was, was right. is like he's being very savvy. Very savvy. But also, uh, but just to look at it, even if we were if we took off 
all cynicism away from this conversation. Like mm-hmm. the things he's doing, going to Iowa, doing smart politics, talking to big donors, keeping people happy and in the tent could help with a reelect as well. That's right. So, yeah, who knows? But savvy operator. Well, Mike, in one way that he was savvy, by the way, unscrupulous, one way that he was savvy is he immediately realized that Donald Trump was going to read this story and fully panicked. Oh, yeah. Did you see the statement that Pence put out being like... Berserker. Like, just, it might as well have said... I Mr. am working for the greatest man in the history yeah. of the world. Mr. Fuck all you Mr. people. Mr. President, this statement is for you. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Jonathan Martin was tweeting about this, too. He said that he they were warned, the New York Times was warned by the Pence people that they would be pushing back ferociously on this story if he, if he printed it. This is one of those stories, though. This is going to grind Trump's gears for months. In three weeks, he's going to do an interview with, like... Mike.com or someplace where you wouldn't expect to be like, by the way, Pence is an asshole. You're just going to say something great. I do think a lot of Trump's tweets this morning were about how great the base is. All of these problems I've had have only brought the base together and the base. Yeah, it's so you're not. It's again like it's so funny. It's very much like George H. W. Bush, like message I care. You're not supposed to talk about the base. (laughs) You're the president. You don't call them the base. They're they're people. They're American citizens. They're not the base. The base. The other. So, but putting putting (laughs) Pence aside, you have SASS, and then you have just sort of a general kind of group of Republicans that are the anti-Trump people, like Flake, kind of being more vocal, but. The uh, Dave Weigel has been beating this drum by beating this drum, and it's, I think, a very fair criticism. Which is, okay, you're vocal. Where's the action? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, Jeff Flake was was railing against Donald Trump being a birther, but then voted to confirm a judicial nominee by Trump, who is a birther. Mm-hmm. So, and, and and Ben Sass is is the same way. You know, I I think Ben Sass is some like. If Ben Sass lived up to the standard that Ben Sass set, I think we'd be seeing a very different version of him. Yeah. One other point on just this this question of will Trump have a primary opponent? I mean, I, I would love to see that happen. And I would love to see, see like a real conversation uh, on the right in the Republican Party about his record and things he's done, like who he is as a man. But I have no, um, I, I have no faith that that primary opponent would be covered in a fair way like the maga media establishment yeah. is not going to walk away from trump they're all in on him because he gets them money in ratings and they do you know propped up all these new outlets he's literally inventing news outlets well, so that are maga, hosted by his kids the maga industrial complex so yeah. this this was my question phrase coined <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is my question about this is how do you run against trump if you're in the Republican primary, like maybe perhaps you don't run against him like a Ben Sass would or a John Kasich would and say he's not living up to conservative principles, conservative free market principles, Cause, cause because, uh, conservative, because what, what a lot of these Republicans, the establishment Republicans have not realized yet are, is conservative free market principles are not popular in this country. Mm-hmm. They're not like Trump's base doesn't believe in them and the Democrats don't believe in them. So that's that's two problems, right? That's two big groups of people that don't believe in them. So the question is, do you do you run against Trump if you're Republican from the other side saying that he has not lived up to his uh, economic nationalism, his populism, like he hasn't delivered on all these promises he made to the base of the party? That's what I'm wondering. Like, yeah, you've talked about this before, just sort of where where you can come at Trump. I mean, where's the wall? Like if somebody if if there's no wall, you could say where's the wall? Someone someone on the right of Trump says he told the Mexican president in a transcript that the wall was the least important part of their conversation, but it was politically a big deal to him. <laughs> yeah. He's not real. You know what Trump says? No, he didn't. You're a wall. Also the sky is purple. <laughs> 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 well, the the thing too is that 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 
part of what makes it challenging to travel to to challenge Trump on either side of him. I don't even know what the sides are anymore. Yeah, it's is true. he did successfully change the conversation in the Republican Party. He personally attacked the dogmas that every other person on that stage adhered to, and so they are his. They are they they are his debating points. Like. He's the one who came in and said the Republicans are wrong on trade and the Republicans are wrong on immigration and we need to build a wall. Like he made that the axis of debate inside the Republican Party. So it's going to be so hard for anyone to claim that they deserve it. I don't know. Yeah, there's not a lot. I mean, there's like the Tom Cotton's out there, right, that you could sort of see running to his right. But he's not, you know, I just he's not Tom very Cotton. You, he's, you just you just can't like, you have to just picture them. None side of these by people side. you want to cheer for, by the way. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, not... Let's be let's be clear on that. point. Look, yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> no heroes on that debate stage. It's going to be tough to pick a pick a side. But the, but uh, you have to like picture these people standing side by side with Donald Trump. And the one thing he was so good at doing is just exposing wimpy little politicians for what they were. Yeah. And uh Tom Cotton is exposable. Now, so this is all about 2020, but let's talk about sort of why this matters before 2020. Um, We've already talked about how his congressional agenda, his legislative agenda is suffering a bit because Republicans in the Senate and the House now are not sticking with Trump on everything. They're kind of going their own way. He's also got some problems within his own White House. <laughs> oh, does just, he? Uh, just to state the obvious, um, not just with uh, not just with all of his staff shakeups, but like the, there's continuing leaks. We saw these. Uh, we recorded right before the transcripts of the foreign leader calls uh, were out. Tommy, what, what did you think about this? Because I know I know you and Lovett have had a little conversation about mm. whether I, this was... I, I heard an impassioned case on Love It or Leave It this weekend, which is a great show. Thank you. You should, you should check listen it out. to it. You should check it oh, out. Oh, yeah. We didn't promote Love It or Leave It. Do uh, it right now. No, we said, move on. Subscribe. Download it. Subscribe. I heard you make a case for why these leaks are good, and we should support in any case because we have a terrible president, and we need to have more information on it. I, like, I just can't help but approach this as someone who worked uh, on the NSC and like knows how – I mean, so – when, when the president calls a foreign leader, a transcript is often made or, or a memorandum of the conversation is made up by the note takers who are in the room. Those things can be not a big deal. Like you can be calling and, hey, I hope we get your vote on X thing at the U.N. Or it could be incredibly sensitive. Hey, Prime Minister Netanyahu, please don't bomb Iran. Uh, it would really bum me out if you bombed Iran this weekend. Let's not do that. So it's going to spin the gamut. I think both sides need to have some sense that they can have a private conversation. And so... You know, that's true internally. That's true for Team Trump, but also anyone he would talk to. Uh, So it does worry me that these things are leaking out. It feels like things are breaking uh, in terms of our ability to protect conversations or just sensitive information that I don't know that we can fix. But I don't know. I'm a little precious about this. I I think that's fine. Look, I I, I hear that. I don't care. Uh, And I don't care because this is going to be you're right. It's absolutely right that that what's happening is people inside of the administration are going to are breaking these tools for secrecy, like important things like just the basic function of the phone call mechanism that the president has is being broken right now. Those things can leak. Anything can be leaked. It's a huge problem, but it's a problem we can fix. And Donald Trump is damaging all kinds of norms and institutions. It's not a surprise that. Inter- there's an internal response to that that is also breaking some things that we like and would rather have for the next president that we were glad were in place for Barack Obama. It's going to take time to repair the damage from Donald Trump. Uh, but I-, I just this is one of those things where these things are going to leak and expose what Donald Trump is doing, how unprepared he is for the job. OK, it's a price we're going to have to pay. I just yeah. I'm, I'm in favor of it. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not blaming the journalists. Like I'm not saying these new news outlets shouldn't be publishing things. But, you know, as part of the Duterte conversation, that transcript leaked, I think they were talking about where nuclear subs were positioned. I mean, there's just a lot of second, third order things that get out there 
that are just disconcerting to me or, you know, information that won't be conveyed to us through that channel uh, that otherwise would have. And meanwhile, over the State Department, Rex Tillerson has literally no one working in the building uh, to talk to these folks. So, Tommy, what's the universe of people who have these transcripts and could leak them? It depends on the it depends on the call. These didn't seem like the most sensitive calls or sort of introductory calls. Like I used to get transcripts of lots of uh, foreign leader calls in my little sit room cubbyhole box. Mm -hmm. Uh, I get a lot of Biden's calls. Those were a blast to read. Let me tell you. Um, (laughs) He's the best. Um, But, you know, if Obama was calling the president of Afghanistan to talk about reconciliation, which is the attempt at a peace process there, that probably would have been one of the most closely held pieces of paper in the government or maybe a transcript wouldn't have been made so there's a lot of different ways this stuff goes down like it's not that hard to photocopy something it's not that hard to hit forward on your email because sometimes they come to your high side email your classified email and you can push it out to someone and it goes and goes and goes and off we go but there's also like a war in the nsc that's deeply dangerous and it doesn't i don't know that these leaks are part of that war but the war against mcmaster and the war of all these creepy aides that are writing insane memos and getting fired. I mean, there's just weird shit going on that just feels unstabilizing. Yeah, it's hard not to pull for McMaster and Kelly and trying to, like, purge some of these crazies. Um, Even if it, like, who knows, even if it, you know, structures the White House in a more orderly fashion, I just think for, like, the safety and security of the world, like, some of these people in the NSC, the, you know, need to get out of there. It's hard because I do want the NSC, the kind of national security apparatus that exists before Trump and that will exist after Trump to function. It has to function. It's really important. You know, this is the anniversary of, I guess it's the 16-year anniversary of the memo that Bush got that said bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. We have absolutely no idea what very secret warnings and information is currently passing through those channels to the president. That process still needs to work. And it's terrifying to think that Donald Trump helms it because you know it's you 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 know that he doesn't have the capacity to properly process this kind of information. So it's this balancing act of I want that aspect to function, but at the same time, if Donald Trump doesn't have secrecy on his phone calls, I think that's okay because I want to know what Donald Trump is saying to these people because I don't trust him and I don't believe he's well, up to and it. And just a sidebar to your point, I mean, Maggie Haberman reported on that long-form podcast you talked about that Trump is still using his old cell phone, which is probably been collected on by at least a half dozen <laughs> intel agencies. So, okay. But uh, palace intrigue, infighting, that's not new. And it's also not new in national security, like Powell versus Cheney, right? There's a whole history of this stuff. But w- w- when you when you read about McMaster trying to purge the NSC of people that are writing memos that talks about a domestic international threats to Trump that include globalist bankers, the deep state Islamists <laughs> that compares it to a Maoist insurgency. Like, who are these people and what are they doing? And then the head of the Intel directorate, Ezra Cohen-Watkins, who's just like, go. I mean, that guy's job is to like manage covert action programs in the most sensitive intelligence collection we're doing, period, in the world. Why is this guy running an enemies list or, you know, getting together with Devin Nunez to do this weird off-the-books briefing. I mean, th- this yeah. stuff is worrisome. It is not just Keystone Cop. It is they're living in a dark place that doesn't really exist in reality. No, it is it is malfeasance mixed with, as we've said many times, the incompetence of the, yeah. the, the broader administration, right? And right. that incompetence that incompetence is creating a vacuum for a lot of bad people to go in and do a lot of bad things. Yeah, I mean, just the kind of people who 
would not have access to any levers of power, even with not certainly not a Democrat, but not even a Republican like a Jeb Bush or even a Marco Rubio. These are people that have no business being in the administration. And that's why that's why you see McMaster and Kelly trying to get these kinds of people out. And they're finding common cause with right wing media outlets that are the people that peddled Pizzagate uh, and claimed that Hillary Clinton had Parkinson's disease. And and there was no price for that. And yet these guys are like openly anti-Semitic. They're putting out cartoons that have like the Rothschilds holding a doll of Soros, who's holding up McMaster, right? Doesn't get more blatant than that. Um, you mean the media, some of these media? The, like, crazy. you know, I'm not going to say their names because I don't want to ever talk about them. But yeah. like crazy right wing bloggers yeah. are getting leaks from the bowels of the NSC in the administration oh, yeah, right. to go after McMaster. And Trump apparently doesn't like McMaster because he briefs in an orderly way <laughs> and doesn't like fuck around when they're talking about Afghanistan. So Trump gets mad that Afghanistan isn't going well and threatens to send him there in lieu of more troops, which I don't think they should do. But, I mean, the whole thing, it just... Well, so the, weirdest, the weirdest thing happened uh, in an NSC meeting is McMaster was speaking and Trump picked up a, rem- a remote and tried to change him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but nobody's, that, but nobody's talking about well, it. Well, no, this is the fundamental <laughs> problem, right? Like, you could talk about the problem of leaks. You can talk about the problem of, you know, staff shakeups and, you know, palace intrigue and all this kind of stuff. But the fundamental problem is that we have a president who is too incompetent for the job and is also and no one can trust. Right. Like those foreign call, those foreign transcripts, foreign leader transcripts revealed that Trump lied about a lot of things like they, they revealed him to be a liar. And also, like, he's not like like he doesn't like that his national security advisor gives orderly briefings like that's not how president of the United States is supposed to fucking act. And also, by the way, one thing to note from those those leaks is Turnbull, Peña Nieto, both <laughs> came off well. Yeah. They did not say anything they wouldn't comfortably say in a press conference. And so, once again, there's a leak or there's an interview, and the only person that looks terrible is our president. Yeah, it's just these are hard jobs, and you're never going to bat a thousand and you're going to make a, mo- a lot of mistakes. But, like, it's been like seven months. These guys don't have their sea legs, they're still fighting with each other constantly. And North Korea is just ramping up launching missiles in the sky like their bottle rockets every other day and you know they're the u.n security council passed sanctions and that's good and that's a real win for trump but and for us uh and for the world but i, I don't know it just it, like bad process always leads to bad outcomes a good process can hopefully get you good outcomes but they are not guaranteed because these are hard problems yeah this show is sponsored by better help how do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. So let's talk about um, how to uh, get Trump out of office. Oh, good. Yes. Speaking of terrible processes and <laughs> scary <laughs> outcomes, the Democratic Party. Because yeah. <laughs> one of the things I noticed is, um, you know, so his approval ratings in the tank. It's probably the lowest it's ever been. Um, you're starting to see some slippage from even the Republican base, their favorability rating of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But um, Gallup did a... Uh, a survey of his approval rating, of Trump's approval rating, on a state-by-state basis and congressional district by congressional district, right? And the the troubling thing is a lot of the slippage in his approval rating is in Democratic states or even when it's the Republicans who have stopped approving him uh, of Trump are Republicans living in Democratic areas, right? Mm-hmm. And so his approval rating in a lot of these Republican areas is still hovering around, or a lot of these swing districts that we're going to try to flip in 2018, forget about 2020, it's still at like 46, 47%. And so the question is, how did Democrats capitalize on all of this to start winning so we can hold them accountable? Because that's the winning. only way we're going to do that. Remember that? Remember, when we, mm-hmm. remember winning things? So, um, so let's talk about the Democrats and how we're, how we're doing on the project of getting our shit together. Um, last week, Ryan Cooper of The Week wrote a piece titled... Why leftists don't trust Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Deval Patrick, who he called, quote, a handful of minority Democrats being groomed by the centrist establishment to run for office. Uh, He then laid out the reasons that the populist left distrust these three. Harris, her past as a prosecutor, failure to charge Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin for his misconduct at One West Bank, Patrick for his employment at Bain Capital, Booker for his comments defending Bain Capital in the 2012 campaign and his support for charter schools. So he lays out this piece. David Atkins of Washington Monthly then writes a piece in response that said, while these may be legitimate complaints about uh, these three In targeting black candidates like Booker, Harris, and Patrick, Cooper gives further fuel to those who claim that Sanders-aligned economic progressives have racist motivations, or at least that they are tone-deaf and poor allies on matters of identity and social justice. He goes on to say that the establishment, on the other hand, must stop treating class war activists as second-class citizens in the party. Love it. You tweeted the story. You tweeted the Atkins story. You said everyone should read it. what are your thoughts on this? And talk about some of the responses that you got to your tweet, which were <laughs> no, all very... <laughs> not talking about the responses. No, th- I think that there's two big conversations going on, one that's really important and good, and one that's less helpful. Uh, the one that's really important is, why are Democrats in the wilderness? Where have we gone wrong? What can we learn from Bernie? What can we learn from Hillary? What can we learn from Macron? What can we learn from um, uh, Corbyn? Like, what, what are the lessons of where liberalism, progressivism is winning or where it's losing? And, and what can we draw from that? Where should we be shifting to the left? Where is it more about messaging? I mean, these, these are big fundamental questions about why Democrats aren't appealing to huge swaths of the country. And and it goes it goes beyond this notion, you know, this this. So then so there's that conversation. Very important. Then there's a less helpful conversation, which is 
uh, basically boils it down to, oh, you want to go after the white working class uh, to the exclusion of the uh, female minority base of the Democratic Party, that there's a lot of accusations that go both sides that really assume a lot of bad faith. I think there's a lot of partisans within the Democratic Party that have been vindictive, that there's a ton of sexism and, and just viciousness inside of this debate. And... I think that the point that David Atkins is making in the piece is here are the axes of the debate that are really helpful. You know, where should we be on health care? Uh, why are why are people on the left of the party skeptical of those who have worked with the financial sector, like like obeying capital? Uh, why is that an important thing to recognize and address? And so I, I, to me, it's it's about recognizing that we're sort of allies in a very big fight and that unity on the left is one of the most important things we can do to combat Trump. What do you think, Tom? Yeah, I mean, those, the poll you started by talking about is is disconcerting. And I think it, it speaks to the closed information loops that existed during the election. It speaks to the power of the MAGA media. Uh, if you don't have friends that you hear from, uh, if you don't hear about like what's going on in Washington most days because you're too busy and you don't have friends to talk to you about it and you don't have Facebook friends who post things, like you're never going to hear about a lot of this stuff. And we all need to remember that as we obsess about it. Um, Trump has certainly helped us paper over a lot of our differences. I think the healthcare fight was a great point of unity that allowed us to truly unite in support of a priority and a goal. You know, I, I don't I don't know the answer. Like I don't get being this critical this early of Booker and Kamala Harris uh, and Deval Patrick. I think those are great public servants. I'm proud that they're members of the party. Times I've interacted with them personally, I've been incredibly impressed by how smart they are. They're good at their jobs. They they fight hard for things I care about and believe in. So, you know, I was a little struck by the amount of viciousness uh, in some parts of the Internet against them. Like, I personally hadn't actually seen a lot of it until I was uh, going back and forth with a reporter and talking about it. So yeah. we have a lot of soul searching to do. Like, I know I'm just, like, restating the problem, which is what Democrats do. But I want to approach this with a lot of humility because I don't know that I spend enough time listening to people from both sides of the spectrum here who are upset about these things. And I yeah. think, like... Part of what we want this show to be is a place to, to air those things as openly as possible. And the one thing I do worry about is if those conversations get shut down. Yeah, I do. And I think oh, that's a good point. One of the big problems with these conversations is that uh, they're happening on Twitter, <laughs> which is which I think is an incredibly useful tool that I am addicted to. So <laughs> yeah, Twitter. But it's very hard to be subtle and nuanced in 140 characters. And. I just I I know what you're saying like I I'm sometimes afraid to say things even on this podcast um, as we start talking about the Democratic Party because I start editing in my head and imagining after this podcast the tweets that we're going to get either from the left or from some Hillary supporters or from some Bernie supporters that we didn't acknowledge their positions and the challenges that they faced in the 2016 primary and. It's so, and it's it like actually stops me from saying some stuff because I'm like we're just going to get in trouble, and I don't think we can be in that position if we're going to try to like unite this party eventually and go win in 2018 and 2020. Like I think we're going to have to have some super uncomfortable, awkward conversations where we make mistakes in some of the things we say, and we like learn from people that we didn't, you know. Yeah, and and not assume, <laughs> and not look for reasons to believe somebody shouldn't be listened to. Right. right, like looking for excuses to not hear somebody. The, uh, yeah. Uh, Look, I think, but but this starts. One of the things we can do is to focus less on individual personalities until it's time for an election, and focus more on like what we stand for as a party, and to talk about the issues. Like, 
the Democratic Party is a party that must stand for economic justice, for racial justice, for social justice, right? Like, we must fight racism in all its forms. We must fight sexism in all its forms. And we have to fight poverty and inequality, right? Like, we have to do all these things. And we have to be able to stand for all these things. And we can't start ordering which of those issues is more important than the others because when we do that, then we start breaking into different camps. Like, it's all important. And and also... Looking at Kamala Harris's record, totally reasonable. You have concerns about it, totally reasonable. Raise them. You have concerns with Deval Patrick. You have concerns with Cory Booker. Great. Don't treat them as as deal breakers. Treat them as reasons to question somebody. Yeah, they find all, out what they're for. All three find of those out. candidates owe answers and explanations on anything. Like, if you're wondering, like, okay, Deval Patrick, you know, explain why you went to work for Bain Capital. Tell us, Kamala Harris, explain your record as a prosecutor. Go ahead, Cory Booker. If you believe in charter schools, tell us why, and let's debate it. Right? Yeah. Like. They, of course they owe us explanations, but like I don't think you just cross them off a list because they're passed without letting them at least talk about this stuff. And then also just, you know, you look at the policy debates, and there's some big policy debates, but you talk about health care, right, and whether single payer should be a litmus test for, a, for Democrats moving forward. Uh, I understand arguing for that as a position, but, you know, like we had Chris Murphy on, and he said he's for a public option. And like... Democrats choose the absolute worst names for things. Like, are you for single payer or a public option? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, but you look at, you boil that debate down and it comes down to, are you for access to Medicare for all or are you for Medicare for all? Right. That's the big debate. It's an important debate. But like, remember that we are on the same side and that we are not adversaries. And by the way, also, this debate is never resolved. You never win this argument. The The argument between the, the, the center left and the left is like the heart of the Democratic Party. And I think the most important thing is that everyone feels included and part of that conversation in developing what the party stands for, that people on the left, the Bernie wing of the party, do not feel in the next run of elections that they're being sidelined or the deck is stacked against them. And at the same time, the people on the center left aren't made to feel like they're Republicans, that they're the same as Trump, just because they have a different point of view on some key policies policy issues like that to me like arguments in good faith not seeing each other as adversaries that is the most important thing as we go into these next elections yeah i mean you've said this before but we need to be patient with our allies and we need to be able to learn from our allies and we need to be able to like hear the voices and learn from the voices of people across the spectrum and people from all different backgrounds right like we're you know look the three of us are three white dudes what? who do a, <laughs> do a podcast what are you Did talking you know about Do you know that so there's a lot of perspectives that we don't have right that we need to that we need to learn from so we try to bring all these people on and learn from it too yeah um it's not gonna be the three of us having the conversation it's important for no one to believe that that they have all the answers on this kind of thing yeah i mean i i, I should go i mean race and gender are a very important part of these conversations and i think that that initial article understandably bothered some people because it singled out three african-american democrats uh and that seemed surprising that that would it would be written that way uh, and i think we should just be honest about that yeah. um and, and i think we should also be honest that for people who have felt frustrated by the party and the lack of progress and the lack of support and help in their community being told you know to be patient and we'll work these things out is probably pretty goddamn annoying after decades and decades and decades of that um and so you know i i don't know how to fix it i think you know one thing we're trying to do here is is have a forum to create have as many honest conversations that we hand not just on this show but all the other shows we're trying to develop which are happening not as fast as we want but they're all happening at the end of the day this is also about um, figuring out to figuring out a way to win elections, okay, and um, you have to be able to figure out a way to win an election despite 
whatever institutional challenges you may face. So in 2007, Barack Obama faced quite a few institutional challenges, right? He was a black man named Barack Hussein Obama from the South Side of Chicago, uh, who was facing a lot of institutional racism. He could, not fi- he, he could not fix that institutional racism. He could only figure out a way to overcome it. The other thing he faced was uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign, which had the support of the entire Democratic establishment, including the Democratic National Committee and a bunch of superdelegates, right? And he had to figure out a way to overcome that as well. So when you look back at 2016, right, like the Bernie people say, well, the whole establishment was against us and Hillary Clinton ran the machine. They were against us, too. In, in 2008, and we just had to figure out a way to around it. Yeah, and, it was, and Barack uh, Obama did. And on the turned other, out it was uh, a mile wide and inch deep. But right. uh, <laughs> and like Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton faced a monumental amount of institutional sexism. Absolutely. But the next woman who runs for president is going to have to figure out a way around that because we're not going to stop running women candidates. We're going to run more. And what they have to have to do is figure out a way to win despite the sexism. And candidates on the left are going to have to figure out a way to win despite establishment support for the other candidates. And by the way, despite despite an entrenched donor class that mm-hmm. you have every reason to be suspicious of, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely. And like, so, yeah, I, there's no there's no easy answers here. But the most important thing, I think this is the point that David Atkins makes in that Washington Post piece, is if this devolves along the same fault lines as the 2016 primary, we are in real, real trouble. And it's dangerous and unhelpful, and I can see it happening. Well, I, I would just want to I, I slightly disagree with that. I think that um, a vigorous primary with a whole bunch of opponents is a net good thing. Yeah. Even if the ultimate uh, candidate has some lasting wounds from that primary process, because I think Hillary, Bernie, O'Malley was probably not a big enough field. Like we could have seen a yeah. more vigorous debate that that just felt larger and more real. Um, so we should fight it out. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you, you fight differently with your family. You fight differently with your friends than you, than you do against the other team. Yeah. Unity should not come at the cost of papering over our differences right we're not we're not looking for unity for unity's sake unity should come after a vigorous debate but it should be the end point yeah and and by the way it'll it, this will be a new conversation because we all learned a lot from 2016 we learned what we had to accept and so. what we didn't we better have <laughs> we better. One we're thing, in the process one last thing about this too is i was we john and i were talking this in the driver that we also shouldn't lose like politics it doesn't have to be an exhausting slog it doesn't have to be like being for Barack Obama, campaigning for him, it was ex- inspiring and it was fun, right? You believed in him and you cared about it and you fought really hard. And, uh, you know, listen, not a fan of Donald Trump. We're not on the fence about Donald Trump. But being for Donald Trump is pretty fun. You go to a rally, you cheer. He tells you everything. Your All your worst instincts are valid. You know, <laughs> you have a good time. Being for Donald Trump is fun for people. Being for Democrats needs to be fun. It can't just be a brutal, exhausting competition. It can't be. It's a little now. It's a little rose-colored glasses because it, being for you're right. Being for Barack Obama fundamentally was inspiring. Was fun. That primary between Obama and Clinton was fucking brutal. It was. That's true. Yeah. That was and a long year. The things year. we said about each other and the other sides was was truly it got it got dirty. New Hampshire <laughs> until we finally won the nomination is like blacked out in my mind. All <laughs> yeah. I can think about is gaining like forty pounds and looking like a White Walker and just <laughs> wanting to end it all every single day. I now imagine being on the losing side. Now, that's what when, a that pleasure. What makes me feel better is when I think about that. <laughs> 
We used to say that we knew how Hillary Clinton would do in a primary before it happened because she always did just well enough to have a justification for staying in, but not well enough to change any dynamic in the race. <laughs> so we just knew it would go on till the bitter, bitter end. Yeah. Anyway, it's cool. going to be a great time. <laughs> uh, when we come back, we will have John Lovett's conversation with Bloomberg Businessweek's Joshua Green. everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Joining us on the pod today, Joshua Green. He is the author of Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. He's also a national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So, first of all, the book is... It's a great read. So I'll be honest, I was reluctant to crack this thing open to like sort of spend my time coming to understand Steve Bannon better. But it's so well written. It is a page turner. And it really is. You know, the the thing you say at the outset is you can't understand Trump without understanding where Steve Bannon came from. And you really feel that as you read the book. So one question I wanted to start out with, what do people not understand about Steve Bannon, Trump's advisor? I think they don't understand whether he's for real or not. You know, he cultivates this kind of mythos as you know the Voldemort of, of politics, and he kind of gets off on that stuff. But it's not really true. And what was so interesting to me about Bannon, I met him back in 2011. He called me up out of the blue after some article I'd written, and he's a very optimistic, smart, funny, you know, profane, clever guy who just has a different way of looking at the world. And so, you know, the morning after the election, I had I had pre-written like a chump. I uh, Business Week, my magazine closes on Wednesday. I had pre-written a Hillary wins story, like three thousand words, all reported, <laughs> ready to go. 
And I ripped it up at like 10 p.m. And the next morning after I turned it in, my mom called and was like, well, what happened? You know, she's a big – she went to Wellesley, big Hillary voter. And I didn't really know. But looking back, you know, I sort of felt like I could put the threads together of Bannon and Trump. And I didn't see it coming. But looking back, I could see how it happened. And that was the idea of the story, the narrative that I wanted to tell in the book. He has this reputation. He is this guy pulling the strings. He's the source of Trump's nationalism, white nationalism, racial resentment, exploitation. Is that all there is to it? I mean, look, I, you know, this book has a lot of intellectualism around Steve Bannon. He's read a lot about traditional Catholicism. He's an autodidact, all this philosophy. But then Trump goes on the stump and he's like, transgender people shouldn't be in the military and we ought to knock the crap out of these animals on the streets. I think that what Bannon has and what he recognized is that conservative politics, as it's represented by Republican leaders in Washington, had long ago become disengaged from the interests and needs of the base. But I think what Bannon recognized, because of the circles he traveled in, was especially the power of illegal immigration as a motivating issue for conservative voters. And I think, honestly, for some um, blue-collar Put Democrats. your phone on silent, John. I mean, you know, come on. We're, this is a professional don't, operation. Don't read it out loud. I it's, won't it's, read it out it's, loud. It's a Trump advisor. Very exciting. But I think that was his main kind of contribution. The idea that he's somebody who, you know, he, he's such a freak and he comes out of such a weird background that he wasn't captive to kind of the mental strictures that I think of as afflicting the ordinary Republican politicians and consultants who come up through the Heritage Foundation and intern for Paul Ryan. And, you know, they're like little robots. He, he saw something different. And he was able to do that because he was a part of what I dub in the book the conservative underworld, like not the respectable conservative places like Fox and National Review, but Breitbart and fringy talk radio. And Bannon himself, you know, people forget this, but I think it's important. He used to host this Breitbart call-in radio show. I, d- I used to do it for like three hours a day. People who became Trump voters, but those kinds of people would just call all day long. Bannon was talking to these people. And so I think he understood and internalized their anxieties and and how to manipulate them and that that was that was really a key to kind of storming the GOP nomination and yeah. the, the presidency. Yeah, the word storming there is pregnant with meaning, say. <laughs> well, so you say to exploit this idea. Is he a sincere advocate for these policies, right? I, the, you know, look, you look at this phone call that just gets leaked and you have Donald Trump saying to the president of Mexico, this is the least important thing, but it's the most important thing politically. You have Bannon that seems to have been on this quest to find a vessel, as you say in the yeah. book. First Palin, Bachman, looking for someone to carry this torch. He finds his Donald Trump and and they're off to the races. But is it a means to an end? Does he actually believe in this kind of anti-immigrant I didn't, you know, when I, when I, when I first met him, I thought he was just a grifter. I mean, he, his way of speaking is like... You know, high energy salesman, coked up Wall Street 80s investment banker. And I thought he was one of these scam pack guys. And, you know, these are the guys that sort of exist in and around the fringes of Washington trying to make a fast buck out of whatever the latest political trend in. And he was a big Tea Party paling guy then. So all, all that stuff seemed to line up. But it became clear pretty quickly that he really does believe this stuff. He's a pretty rich guy. He doesn't need to make a fast buck off anybody. And I, I think he is sincere to a frightening degree in everything that he talks and says Bannon has a lot of vices, but he doesn't he doesn't lie. He doesn't really spin in the way that normal political people do. He kind of wears his underwear on the outside. I mean, he'll tell you exactly what he believes, no matter how appalling or upsetting it might be to mainstream discourse. Is he a racist? I don't honestly think he is, um, at, at least not in, in not in the, the kind of storm front 
you know, clan hood wearing sense. Um, but it doesn't I, have to be that sense. I think no, it doesn't have to, and that's where it gets in a tricky area. I think that he is more motivated by religion than he is by race. And one of the threads in the book is tracing the Islamophobia all the way back to his experience in the Navy. He was over in the Persian Gulf during the failed mission to rescue Iran hostages. And even before that, to this uh, weird right-wing Catholic military high school he went to in Richmond, Virginia. I talked to some of his classmates who were like, look, we were taught from you know freshman year that Western civilization is under assault by Islam and the Moors and Ferdinand and Isabel in the 1500s saved Christendom in the Western world. It's the moops. The, 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 the moops. And Bannon, to a frightening degree, I think internalized that and, and, and believes it. And so the way that manifests itself is a hostility, I think, to Muslims or, or to Muslim immigrants and refugees. And well, so I'd call I, that bigotry. Okay. Well, then, then if that falls under your definition, then I'm, it does. I'm, I'm and, asking and, and a I question. Think, and I think also, and I think also, toward you know immigrants from Central America, Mexico, that kind of thing. What, what I've never seen or heard from Bannon, and he's he's been explicit on many other hot button issues, is any kind of anti-black or anti-Semitic comment. He he gets kind of charged with all these things. Some of them I've seen, and I quote some horribly misogynistic uh, things he says about Hillary Clinton, but but others I haven't. Bull dyke is the term that you use in the book. Can I swear? You can say whatever you want. We got an E next. It, it, it was fucking bull dyke. Oh, got it, Just just any called Paul, you know, Paul Ryan, Olympic mother. I guess he, I guess he's not that racist. Part, that part Ryan, was yeah. one place where I thought, you know, let's let's hear let's, let's hear Matt. Let's hear Matt. <laughs> he, he may have a point here. But, but it's tough. I mean, I don't think Bannon is motivated by uh, you know a hatred for black people or anything like that. I think it's a little more complicated than that. Although the end effect maybe some of you consider racist, but it's the this idea that there is some fundamental Judeo Christian American national identity that is threatened by the influx of immigrants and. Right. Well, but then you end up with an ad in the run up to the election in which he talks about some globalist conspiracy. And of course, who is the conspirators? They're three Jewish Mm -hmm. financial people. You look at what Donald Trump is. And, you know, you you talk about how Donald Trump became the sort of perfect vehicle for Bannon's politics. In a lot of ways, Donald Trump has been practicing a form of this politics for decades. He takes out that ad calling for the execution of the Central Park Five. He has been talking about these lousy trade deals for as long as he's been in the public eye. And so you you kind of have this sort of combination of a willingness to exploit white grievance and white resentment mm-hmm. and this anti-Republican position on trade and immigration in Trump before Bannon ever gets I, there. Well, I, see, but I think it's totally different. I don't think Trump believes in any of that. And not to be too <laughs> too whorish and plug in my book. No, but, do it. But there, there, okay, so if you go back to the <laughs> 70s, Trump was, as you said, just absolutely explicit, pressing racial hot buttons. But one of the interesting sort of lines of research in the book, it's not just it's not just Ben. I do, I do Trump, mm-hmm. too. And Trump, from about 2004, when he began The Apprentice, to 2011, when he began the racist birther rants against Obama, made himself wildly popular with African-Americans and Hispanics who were huge fans of The Apprentice and were, were actually had, had – I went and found the Q ratings of, of, of Trump yeah, among yeah. all the demographic groups. And Trump was more popular with minorities than he was with white people back then, which made him a darling of corporate America. And so he is willing to exploit racial grievances when that is in his best interest. And he's willing to s- subordinate those impulses and embrace minorities when that is in it. So I think he flip-flops back and forth and doesn't have any fixed beliefs. But as soon as he decided he wanted to run against Obama, which which was the motivating factor in the birther stuff, he was happy to chuck that overboard and go right back to doing what he'd done in the 70s and 80s. You have this uh, quote that I wanted to read in the book that I thought was 
just really well said. Trump, who has an uncanny ability to read an audience, intuited in the spring of 2011 that the birther calumny could help forge a powerful connection with party activists. He also figured out that the norms forbidding such behavior were not invaluable rules that carried a harsh penalty, but rather sentiments of a nobler bygone error, gossamer thin and needlessly adhered to by politicians who lacked his willingness to defy them. He could violate them with impunity and pay no price for it. In fact, he discovered Republican voters thrilled to his provocations and rewarded him. I mean, that, I think, is the core insight into Donald Trump. It's it's not that he's willing to do anything. It's that he recognized that not only is there not a cost, but he'd be actively rewarded. So I, I went and talked to some of the earlier Trump advisors, guys like Roger Stone, who'd known him for a long time, and went really deep on this point, which is that you know Stone submitted to me, and he says in the book that you know Trump wanted to run in 2012. He really, really wanted to run. And he saw that this birther stuff, it connected, okay? And not only did it connect, but he rose to the top of the polls. I'd forgotten until I did the research for the book that Trump was actually leading the Republican presidential field in the spring of 2011. I didn't know that. Yeah, isn't that nuts? And nuts. it was in the middle of the birther stuff. But the other thing he noticed, Stone pointed this out to me. You know who the brand new chairman of the Republican National Committee was one month into the job when Trump started his birther stuff? It was Reince Priebus. Was Reince Priebus. And the very first scandal that Priebus, <laughs> scandal that Priebus had to address as the new RNC chairman was Trump going off on this birther rant. And I found this interview was on C-SPAN that Jonathan Martin and Jeff Zeleny, uh, two veteran political reporters, they were interviewing Priebus on C-SPAN. And Zeleny's like, hey, man. You know, Trump went out and essentially called the black president, you know, Kenyan and a Muslim, like, are you going to condemn this? And Priebus just hems and haws and just completely <laughs> wimped out. And Stone told me that Trump at that moment recognized that the Republican establishment was just a bunch of weak jellyfish who would allow themselves to be walked all over. And that's exactly what happened. I do not want to take us on a Reince Priebus tangent, but that soft little wimp, that craven, despicable guy, I mean... At every turn, Trump has made a fool of him. He made a fool of him from the beginning. He made a fool of him when he was a birther. He made a fool of him with that pledge. Remember the pledge? The, to pledge, stop, the pledge to prevent <laughs> Donald Trump from running as an independent. What Ryan's a, previous what, what a great stroke idea. of genius that was. Unbelievable. Okay, so let's go to where we're at right now. We've seen a series of legislative defeats or you know, just a failure really to get anything big across the finish line. Meanwhile, this in the past two weeks, Donald Trump tweeted a transgender ban. He came out for a harsh anti-immigration law a proposal by Tom Cotton. Uh, Jeff Sessions has put forward or there are reports that he's going to put forward a plan to try to put an end to affirmative action. Donald Trump went to the Boy Scout Jamboree of all places and kind of stoked a kind of animus and then went in front of law enforcement in Suffolk County and said, these are animals, you know, we got to knock the crap out of them. Well, he, that's his old phrase now. He, whatever. I can't even remember the exact quote, but he encouraged police brutality and then later said it's a joke. This feels like a return to baseline a kind of the Bannon politics again. Is but that it, right? Yeah, but it was always going to go there, right? I mean, in, unless he turned out to be some miracle legislator, he doesn't have the powers of concentration and the ability to <laughs> subordinate his own ego before a bunch of senators. So he was always going to fail on this. And when he does, he falls back on the kind of Bannon-based politics. And that's why Bannon, I think, is such... A, has been able to survive like these series of purges and yeah, you know, yeah. all the backstabbing. But B, is even in an administration that is just calamitous and, and failing every which way, Bannon has managed to win on these issues that he cares about, like immigration. I mean, it's 
uncanny to me how much the administration has been able to get done. And Miller explained this. I did a big interview with Stephen Miller, um, very much in the news for his immigration stuff this week. B minus Santa Monica fascist. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Your words, not mine. I know. Uh, Not that I'm throwing up a great objection. I'm just, um, just, I just need to make sure I brand him. You know? Right, right, right. Trump but, is president. But, but you the point be he made people. was, you know, immigration is the one area where we actually don't have to pass laws. The laws are on the books. We have a lot of latitude in how we enforce them. And arrests are up. I think deportations are up. But I know Sessions has sent more judges to the border. And Bannon is a big advocate of lowering legal immigration, which you just saw with the embrace right. of the cotton bill this week. So he is managing to get a lot of what he wants just by dint of his ability to survive all the knife fighting in the West Wing. So you've now spent these months in the mind of Bannon, in the kind of trying to understand what led to this cataclysmic event, or at least what opened the door to it. What is the lesson? So for let's say for Democrats who are looking at this and say, you know, we don't want to play in this trap. We don't want to adopt any of this. We want to fight this. We want to figure out you know, we knew how to fight traditional Republicans, and, and at the presidential level, we were good at that. We're looking ahead to 2018 and 2020. What's the lesson for Democrats from Steve Bannon? You know, I'm going to get lots of angry tweets and lessons for them. But, you know, the lesson to me uh, of Bannon is that he was a shrewder analyst of both Republican and Democratic politics between, say, 2013 and 2016 than anybody else. One of the things that attracted him was not only just the kind of the colorfulness of his slovenly character and all that, but that he really is a shrewd guy in a lot of ways. And what drew me to him originally was his critique of how conservatives had failed in the 1990s when they went after the Clintons. It was that, you know, they became so absorbed in their own tail and so trapped in their own bubble that they didn't recognize they weren't connecting with the rest of the world, which which I agree with. And I tell the story of how he came up with the Clinton Cash book and all that in the book to try and break through into the mainstream media and sour people against Clinton. But the lesson for Democrats, it seems to me, is, you know, I don't want to spoil the ending for anybody who hasn't read it. But Trump wins in the end. And the morning after the election, we had had this arrangement where he was going to call me win or lose for my pre-written Hillary wins cover mm-hmm. story. And to his credit, he did. And he kind of said, I mean, now do you understand like what happened? I'm like, honestly, I don't have any idea what just happened. It, what do you think just happened? He goes, you guys fell into the same tra- – he considers me part of the left and the mainstream media. He said, you guys on the left and Hillary and all the Democrats fell into the same trap that Republicans did in the 90s. You believed all your spin and you believed that Trump was objectionable and you never allowed the possibility that people might be attracted to some of the things that Trump was saying. And I think he was right about that. And I think the big issues were, one, you know, the economy and the idea that despite whatever the stock market was at, there were a lot of people being left behind. It wasn't like Trump had policy papers to back this up, but he was clearly speaking to these voters. I think immigration was a big issue. I mean, Bannon was absolutely convinced that Hillary wanting to go even beyond where Obama was in terms of allowing undocumented immigrants to stay in the country, essentially weakening immigration laws even further, just enraged a group of voters that included people who had voted for Barack Obama Mm -hmm. and who in the past would have been Democratic voters. I think that it may be the case that Trump face plants so hard over the next, you know, 18 months that Democrats can maybe win back the House without really changing anything. But I think that, and I know Bannon agrees with this, there is a structural problem underlying all this, that Democrats need to fix something in the party to appeal beyond the Obama coalition and find a way to win back some of these blue-collar 
elderly rural voters who once voted Democratic but don't anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's and a debate. That's a way to get like beat over the head with a tennis racket by Bernie voters. But I think he's right about that. I think that's the lesson that, that people ought to learn from Steve Bannon. Well, he figured out how to connect and activate those voters that should rightfully have been Democratic. Well, just to push back, I mean, the argument that you'd hear from some on the left would be that's a tough group of people to persuade. A lot of them are people we lost a long time ago, but there are tens of millions of people who we are naturally inclined to vote Democrat, but didn't turn out and millions of them could turn out and that have been enough to swing it. One other piece of this, and, and you wave it off in the book. That's not a criticism. You're not talking about that, but Comey, sexism, challenges in the media and all the rest, but not for a series of kind of black swan events. This is a guy that got Trump almost there and we're not having this conversation, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, but at the same time, this is somebody who got Donald Trump close enough to be president of the United States. I mean, is there are we overselling the value of this kind of politics that so many things had to go wrong? So many he had to draw this perfect hand for Donald Trump to be elected. Or is the lesson the fact that Donald Trump was close enough? No, that, no it's very much the, the latter. Okay. I mean, it, look, I mean, and it's not just Donald Trump. Look at. The Senate, right? Democrats were supposed to win back the Senate this cycle. They had such favorable allotment Russ of states. Russ in Wisconsin. What happened? You know, we look, don't. We have not come to understand what but happened. But look, there. look up and down the ticket. Look at all the governorships. I mean, what do Republicans have? Like thirty-six governorships. This isn't just. A I don't Don- know. This we just lost one yesterday. Yeah, there you go. This, this, <laughs> I'm not sure what the latest count is. This isn't just a Donald Trump story. It's like by the last any black means. runner. This is this is this is what Bannon is talking about. There is a structural problem within the Democratic Party that they haven't figured out how to address. And one of the one of the things that's kind of unnerved me the most is the fact that at least from where I said, I don't really see this conversation taking place. Like I expected in the weeks after the election that there would be, you know, rending of garments and soul searching and big Democratic fights like there were back in, you know, the, the mid 1980s on, you know, what is the path forward and how do we. Yeah. And for the most part, and part of this is just that Trump hogs every media cycle with his craziness. But for the most part, I don't think that debate has happened. And it's not clear to me that the Democratic Party broadly is figuring out a way to attract not just an electoral college majority in a presidential race, but support in non-urban places that they're going to need to win back a House and Senate majority. That's why I don't think you can just look at the uh, you know millions of minorities and millennials who could have turned out but didn't and say, well, if we just activate them, then we'll be okay. You might be in a presidential race, but it takes a lot more. Well, they just don't live in in a lot of these congressional districts. I feel like one lesson I take away from Bannon and, you know, the Democratic Party has to stand against any kind of exploitation of white resentment. And I don't believe that that's the answer in any way. No, no. And by the way, I'm not. And I don't and I don't think you're saying so. But but, and so when I say this, I'm not referring to the way in which Steve Bannon approached this. But the fact that this is somebody who looked at the entire establishment and said, you're wrong, that there is another path here. and, and and, And the fact that it was attacking Republican dogmas and actually Democratic dogmas on trade and yep. immigration. You know, there's no rule that says that these voters that we lost to Trump can't be gotten back with an agenda that looks nothing like Steve well, Bannon's. Exactly. And here, here is where I think Democrats can learn and take advantage of what Bannon has showed us. The Democratic Party is the one that has an economic agenda that does more for uh, middle class, working class, lower middle class voters than the Republican Party does. And one ironic illustration of this is if you look at what Trump tried to do on health care, had he been successful in repealing the Medicaid expansion, 
which was passed with Democratic votes and a Democratic president, he would have hit his own voters harder, really, than a lot of people. A lot of those people were Trump voters. I think Trump voters were overrepresented yeah. in the in, in the people That's who benefited because, from that law. Yeah. And so de- what Democrats need to do is make a more robust, and, and here's where I agree with the Bernie folks, and more populist, economic populist message to try and reach some of these voters. So instead of appealing to white that. resentment, you can appeal to white, but also other yeah, <laughs> demographic, I mean, that I, that, e- economic <laughs> needs and concerns. That's what I sort of, I've said this before, but Donald Trump reminded a lot of white working class people that they were white. We can remind white working class and brown working class and black working class that they're working. Yeah. Uh, but one other point, you know, it goes, it goes to the larger issues that, that, that in many ways Trump is a symptom of a larger disease. One reason the Medicaid expansion applied more to Trump voters is because Republican governors in southern states with heavily black populations that could have used Medicaid expansion didn't get it. Yeah. So I, one thing I did want to – how much of what we're talking about here is not unique to Trump? How much of this exploitation That's of resentment – is actually a deeper problem inside the Republican Party. You know who I talked to a lot about this? It was interesting. Oddly enough, before he went into the government, was Jeff Sessions. Um, he pointed out, so I, I'd had an interview with him. Um, it's included in the book, but it was actually for a profile I did a ban back in 2015. So Sessions was still a senator at the time. Stephen Miller was the guy who arranged the interview. But the point he made was that just Look, the worst people have been rewarded. Continue. <laughs> that, that's my beat, man. <laughs> but but he made the point that, look, you know, these forces that emerged as Trumpism have been kind of roiling in our party for a long time. And he said, go back and look at George W. Bush's attempted immigration reform in 2007. It was bipartisan. It had McCain and Ted Kennedy. But it was stopped because the grassroots kind of, you know, revolted and stopped it. There's always been, until Trump came along, I felt like there was always a lid on that kind of sentiment. It just wasn't allowed to pour into the mainstream of Washington politics in the way that it has since Trump. And when we talk about, you read the passage from the book about Trump essentially smashing the walls and norms, what he did was to allow all that sentiment to kind of come flooding in, and he stoked it, and he exacerbated it. And Bannon, who before he was Trump's guy, uh, was a propagandist and a filmmaker, was very good about how to you know, trigger those feelings and those anxieties and exploit them. So uh, I, I think that that has unleashed something that's going to be hard to kind of put back in. But to me, that is Trump's great sin in our politics to have kind of opened that genie's bottle and, and yeah. let all this out. Just one final point on this. It's Jeff Sessions who stopped bipartisan criminal justice reform. It's Tom Cotton, uh, who was part of that effort to stop criminal justice reform and who now is a proponent of the anti-immigration bill that Stephen Miller was yelling at Jim Acosta about Mm -hmm. in the briefing room. So a lot of this is a sentiment that's been there under the surface or part of the fringe that now occupies well, this, the White and this House. is what I call in the you know so it's funny Sessions is the guy who kind of gave me this concept of a conservative underworld we talked in 2015 and he was so animated about Breitbart News at the time because Bannon was still the chairman of Breitbart News but he was plotting the whole Clinton cash thing and what he said was he goes look you don't see this he's talking to me because you live in Washington but I read Breitbart every day. You know, me and Stephen Miller, we call, we give them stories. And I know it's having an influence because I, Jeff Sessions, do talk radio all over the country. And when I call in for my morning segments, the things they ask me about, I know they're reading Breitbart because those are the stories on Breitbart News. And his point was that this stuff is being it's disseminating beneath the radar of, you know, elite Washington journalists like me and whatever you are. And 
and I and I think he was right about that. And, and, what and am that I, John? Now, right, but, then, <laughs> but but now these people have been elevated from the fringe. I mean, you know, Sessions was a gadfly and a nobody two years ago in the Senate, but now he and Miller and Bannon and all these people who are on the fringe are, are in charge of the U.S. government, and they're able through the powers of the presidency to implement a lot of these policies. One last question. I want to get to what I believe is the single most important passage of the book. Uh, and I want to, before I read this passage, I just want to be clear. And I don't know if you can confirm it. I can say unequivocally I was not a source for this book. Can you confirm? No, you, you can confirm that because you didn't call me back when I, when I emailed <laughs> you to talk about this Welcome stuff. to anyone who tries to get in touch with me. Man, uh, yeah. I will read the quote. It says, Obama's writing staff is about the Correspondence Center in 2011, even brought in a ringer, the comedian and director Judd Apatow, to help its most comedically gifted speechwriter, John Lovett, compose a devastating takedown of Trump. I just want to once again say that I'm not the source for that. Uh, I assume many well, people are your I assume you're a double source. Well, you're be, a serious journalist. Being, being the most comedically gifted Obama <laughs> says like a tallest midget we kind of thing. Oh, how dare you? How dare you? It is a murderer's row of, com- of comedy speechwriters over there. How but, dare you? But this 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 is actually a pivotal moment in Trump's story. So you, you, you I think, bear some responsibility for all that has come since. But uh, I refuse to accept that or even acknowledge it. But, you know, so Trump is, you know, riding high on, let's fill in viewers yeah, who don't please. follow this stuff. And I, this, I, you know, I tell the whole story in the book, but this, Trump was riding high in the birther stuff. He was doing this national tour and he was leading the polls. And then he decides to come to the White House Correspondence Center in 2011. Seth Meyers is going to be the comedy. Trump loves the attention. He sits in the middle of the room and he gets absolutely ambushed first by President Obama in a, a, a speech that just absolutely like mugs Trump and robs him of any shred of dignity. And we toned it down. And you guys toned it down. Oh, I want to see. I want to see. It. But you wrote it with Judd Apatow. And so I tell it. And there's this and famous. John and Axelrod and other Right. Things. And there's this famous footage of Trump kind of sitting there reddening in the face as he's just humiliated and raked over the coals by Obama. And then Seth Meyers comes in and keeps it going. And. You know, at the time, everybody in politics thought, all right, that's it for Trump. He he has ventured too far in his little pretend presidential race to stoke ratings for The Apprentice or whatever. And now he's been smacked down. He's going to go away. And that's all what we understood to yeah. have happened for like five years until he actually ran, when in reality, you know, that filled him, I think, with burning resentment and redoubled his efforts to go out there. And he was going to try and run in 2012. Bannon actually helped him plot a proto campaign in the end he didn't do it but you know three years later in 2015 he comes down the trump tower escalator and and does it for real uh and and i think he was driven by resentment at the types of folks who (laughs) go to white house correspondence dinner and write speeches for it yeah 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 well whatever the uh (laughs) look he's been seeking the approval and demanding the respect of the elite his entire life, but the one thing he's never been willing to do is have the kind of integrity or sense of purpose or discipline to earn it. And, you know, to this day, that cycle continues with him dragging Maggie Haberman into the Oval Office to get the approval of the New York Times. Yeah, no, and on some level, he has to realize he'll never have the respect of the elite and the approval and this and that because of the way he comports himself yeah. and conducts himself. But that is an ongoing psychodrama that I think he's never going to be free of. Yeah, but I also think it's ultimately part of his appeal that, that he is, for all the wealth and privilege he had his whole life, he wanted to be part of a club that wouldn't have him. And How's that appealing? 
I know it's appealing to the kind of people who feel like life is unfair to them. I mean, and that's truly true of the people in my life. From the standpoint that it gives you a psychological predisposition to have a chip on your shoulder, he has the grievance, and he has hostility, the grievance. and grievance against you know the establishment and all that. Yeah, I guess I I buy look. That. We could talk about. I am. This is a fantastic book. I really sincerely and sincerely encourage everybody to, to pick it up and read it. I could talk to you all day about this. It's so interesting. There's so much good stuff in there. But John and Tommy will yell at me for having an hour and 25-minute episode. And, you know, look, I at the end, I, I always need, I always me. need an editor to, to <laughs> yeah, to shorten my stuff. So I'll just, I'll just stop talking. But Joshua thank you. Green, thank you so much for having me. The book is Devil's Bargain. End of interview. On the pod, we have the host of Cricket Media's Pod Save the People, DeRay McKesson. DeRay, how's it going? Hey, it's good to talk to you guys. Haven't been on in a while, so it's good to be back. I know. We miss you. It's good to have you. <laughs> so you interviewed New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio this week. Uh, what did you guys talk about? I did. So we talk about, it, you know, we had to fit it into this like tight sort of 25-minute block. We covered Rikers, closing Rikers. Mm-hmm. Why is it taking so long? Uh, we covered pre-K. New York City just did a, a big expansion of pre-K. Interestingly, we covered turnstile jumpers, which his response was, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see people's uh, response to his response about turnstile jumpers. And then we covered uh, the marijuana arrest. So New York City has arrested about 20,000 people for each of the first three years of his administration for possessing marijuana. And we talk about sort of the what behind that and, and what's the work to come. Is that an uptick in arrest from before he was mayor or is that uh, is that sort of steady? No, it's like dramatically less people. So like way less people than Bloomberg arrested for marijuana because de Blasio sort of went to this summon system. So like it's not technically an arrest. It still is interaction with the police. But so many fewer people are being arrested. A lot of people are still getting summons. I think and this is sort of what I ask him is uh, what's interesting about it is that even though there are less people getting arrested, the percentage of people of color being arrested is actually the same so it's still like 85 percent of the people arrested are still people of color even though it's much fewer people being arrested and we talk about like why is the disparity still there hmm. that's great well that'd be an interesting interview we we interviewed de blasio back in uh in february when we were in we were in brooklyn for a live event and a lot of people liked the interview they had not heard from you know people outside new york and not heard from de blasio a lot and he's uh he's a good interview yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, he ran on Broken Windows Policing. He ran on Universal Pre-K. Uh, he, a lot of the things that he ran on have come to fruition, even if people are really frustrated with him. Um, I do think there's more work to be done with his administration on um, the criminal justice front. So it'll be interesting to see what a second term looks like if he wins. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about, one of the top stories on CNN.com right now is about the opioid crisis in Ohio, uh, which is obviously one of the hardest hit states. Specifically, the piece is about how the crisis is transforming Ohio's criminal justice system. You've talked about this issue a lot on Pod Save the People. What needs to happen on a national level to address this crisis? Is it more money? Is it a change in attitude, strategy? What's your take on this? Yes, I also interviewed Chris Hayes for tomorrow's podcast, and um, we talk about it too. Just a quick sort of primer is that remember that the war on drugs was a big crackdown on crack in communities of color uh, during the, the 90s, and so many people were incarcerated that there was not this push to treat opioids as a public health crisis, and now there is a push to treat it as a public health crisis. So to your answer to your question specifically, like we should treat this as a public health crisis. Both my parents were addicted to drugs. They didn't need to be incarcerated. They needed treatment and recovery. So like that's where we should shift our resources. It is interesting to see what's happening uh, 
uh, now because while the rhetoric and Chris and I talk about this, while the rhetoric with regard to opioids is is more a public health crisis e in this moment, especially because white people are, are overdosing in record numbers. The reaction to it at the policy level has actually still been really punitive or might be. So uh, what's going underreported is a story broke that there is a prescription drug monitoring program that all 50 states are a part of. Mm-hmm. Did you know about this? Where no. People who I, use... saw, I saw the headline, but I didn't, I, I didn't. I don't know about it. Yeah, Missouri was the last state to join. Um, and essentially, they're tracking people who use a set of prescription drugs. And what they say they're doing is to monitor whether you're doctor shopping or not, like whether you have the same prescription from a host of doctors and stuff like that. But there are a lot of people who think that this is actually infringing on HIPAA, people who, you know, because in some states you don't even need a warrant. The police don't need a warrant to get like your medical history with regard to prescriptions and things like that. Mm-hmm. So the response to the opioid crisis in this moment could actually lead to less protection of people's civil rights, uh, which is an interesting take on it that like is not actually breaking through in the public space. And how does the criminal justice system sort of transform into more of a, you know, figuring out how to deal with this issue as a public health crisis as opposed to sort of a criminal justice action? Like, what are some of the steps in that CNN story about Ohio that, you know, law enforcement's taking or law enforcement could take to address this more as a public health crisis than a criminal justice one? Yeah, so one of the the biggest things is is literally to offer a treatment to people. So most people need most people who are heavily addicted need treatment programs that are mm-hmm. residency programs, like thirty day, ninety day programs. Day programs work for some people, don't don't work for everybody. Uh, things like Narcotics Anonymous are, are hugely helpful for a lot of people as well. What is not helpful is uh, sort of arresting people because they're just addicted. So you know it's hard to it's hard for many people to detox when they are in a prison and to get the the mental health treatment they also need. Uh, there are a lot of there are also set up uh, policies and practices that people put in place thinking that it's actually keeping communities safer, but it's not. So like drug free school zones is a great example, right? It sounds good on the surface. And what drug-free school zones did is that they criminalized, they like increased the penalties for drugs being sold within like a thousand feet of a school. Mm-hmm. In most urban places, like everything's within a thousand feet of a school. Right. So that actually just like is dramatically increasing the amount of people who have arrest records and things like that. Uh, so those are the things we know that doesn't work. But treatment and access to treatment are the single biggest things that can actually help people uh, recover. And I'm guessing there's probably not enough funding for treatment programs right now as well. Not enough funding. And people just don't, you know, I don't know how many times, how many times have you heard people talk about like live in treatment programs, you know, it just, it doesn't break through. And like the, you don't see it in the media, you don't see in the news where like people go away for 30 days, get treatment and then are able to come back to their homes. There's like this weird sort of public reliance in the, in the media around like methadone clinics and things like that as being the best sort of treatment. And we know that that's actually not the case that people need mental health treatment. People need like in-person programs or day programs where, where possible, but treatment is really the answer here. That's good. Well, everyone check out your interview then with Chris Hayes about the, for more on this topic, on the opioid crisis, and your interview with Bill de Blasio. Positive the People comes out tomorrow, right? Tuesday? Tuesday, yep. Excellent. All right, well, we'll all tune into that. And thanks for stopping by. Cool. Good to be back. Talk to you later, guys. Take care. Thanks again to our guests for today, Joshua Green uh, from Bloomberg Business Week and DeRay McKesson for joining. It was a great interview with uh, with Joshua Green. I know you haven't heard it yet. <laughs> uh, you know what else was great? What? Today's Hannah's birthday. <gasps> Happy, Happy birthday, birthday, Hannah! Happy birthday, Hannah! If uh, her normal consumption habits hold, she'll hear this in two weeks. So That'll be a nice treat It'll for her. A late treat. She'll think that the whole birthday celebration is over <laughs> and there'll be one last blast. <laughs> one last blast. John Favreau, 2017. <laughs> 
Happy yeah. birthday, Anna. Do you have anything else End to do? Any- no, I like doing the outro. I like oh, well, to drag you on. Like, Love it likes continuing the outro until it becomes awkward, yeah. and then it sort of just dribbles <laughs> And then by the end, we're like tweeting hammock at Dan. <laughs> End of episode. <laughs> You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.